to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by MAP. My name's Alex Clements and MAP have just released a new color of their Eco Pro base kit. And if you do need any other kit, especially as it's starting to get a bit cooler here in winter, make sure you check out their full range of apparel at map.cc. Today on the podcast, we've got Dr. David Spindler. He's a sports psychologist. He works with some of the best athletes in the world, including his most notable client, Rowan Dennis. We chat to him about a new study he's done around what some cyclists may know as happy watts or the performance benefit you get from being happy outside of the sport. We talked to him about that. A bit of a, we could go a little bit off topic, talk about my career a little bit, a little bit around athlete transition and wrap things up with how he took Rowan from leaving Bahrain Merida at the Tour de France to winning a world championship and everything in between. I hope you enjoy this episode. And uh, yeah, if you've got any feedback, please let us know at Stanley Street Social on all all social media platforms. Welcome, David Spinler, back to the podcast. You've got me though, unfortunately, this time. Sorry. Oh, that's okay, mate. Yeah. Both of you are fine. Yeah. <laughs> We're um, here down at Cadell Evans Scott Ashen Road Race. You're um, servicing your athletes as you always do. Yes. So I'm no longer with a uh, team specifically, but I'm down here um, with my individual athletes uh, racing. What's your, t- what's your title again for people that don't know? Uh, in what respects? I... All, all, all aspects of life. Uh, so I'm an athlete welfare advisor. Um, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. Um, I research the way that neurotransmitters work above ventricular threshold. And sort of uh, one aspect of my business is uh, performance lifestyle solutions. So making sure that athletes are um, looked after the best possible and to give them optimal performance when they're on the bike. Hmm. How long and your dad? The other job that's the most important one actually yeah the thank you for that my <laughs> wife will be very happy <laughs> the working with athletes how long have you been doing that for now uh 2008 yeah so what's that 12 years yeah yeah have you seen that evolve um my roles evolved slightly differently from from sort of only having a a couple in my stable to now um sort of my business has got some of you might know the, the whole Rowan Dennis uh, situation at World Championships last year. So I've, I've got a lot of phone calls post that. So my business has kind of changed quite a lot mm. since then. Um, for want of a better word, in demand, which I wish I wasn't because then if I wasn't in demand, then the athletes would be supported as well as they should be. What's the cause of the demand? That's a... That's a, a question that has a multitude and myriad of answers, uh, of answers I suppose... Mostly the demand is athletes uh, struggle um, with saying that they're vulnerable to, to members of staff within teams. So they, they need somebody to, to have, a, have a decent, honest and evaluating conversation in regards to where their career is and how their career is evolving. Mm. And that's very difficult to do if you have the same logos on your T-shirt. Yeah, and especially with the way that cycling works with the contract system. Yeah, so so it's not a long term. I'm, I'm 
I think the longest contract that I've heard of um, is a three-year one. Yeah. Which is, it just amazes me, really. Like, you can be the best athlete in the world um, and there's no long-term um, contracts for, for any for anybody. And I mean, that's sport in general. But, um, but yeah, so you're only... Your worth is at max three years, mostly two. Mm. So, so you're only your next contract is is your your uh, really the only money that you're committed to for the rest of your life. From what they think, the one that the contract that amazes me the most is the Neo Pro contract. Yep. You've got two years most of the time, unless you're very lucky. Yep six months at least working out what you're doing where you're living how you're operating what the new team is and then you've literally got to probably july the next year to yeah so you've got a year you've really. got a year really yeah like that two years is really only oh, it, for even the best of them a year like you've got that six months um like you said uh, working out what you're going to do where you're going to live um especially for a for a non-european based um neo then from there you've got a year, but of that, you've probably only got five or six races total that you can actually make a significant difference in to then be noticed by someone within your team to get another contract for the for the for the the next pro, next contract after the neo. But that's limiting again because what you really want is a contract from somebody else. So then you can leverage that to the team that you're in now. Is, is there anyone that's doing that differently, or are they all the same? They're pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. Like cycling's a um, is a sport where the it's a very tradition tradition based um, mm. sport. Um, it's getting slightly different um, away from that tradition. Uh, the best teams in the world are sort of employing sort of more advanced methods rather than the traditional ones. Yeah, but. Um, Still, when it comes to contractual obligations and things, it's very traditional. And so athlete psychology or welfare is something that's not in the traditional realm of cycling teams. No. Is it almost there? Is it almost a normal thing to have? The same as they spend on a mechanic or a developing new products or physical things? No. Um, some Some teams have um access to uh, people that have the same services as myself um i think quick steps got somebody a, a belgian guy i can't think of his name um Ineos have got someone uh, who's a forensic psychiatrist named steve peters um and but very few others um like i said i'm i'm, I'm no longer with um ntt which is dimension data um and so yeah there's one less of us as such even though i'm not there anymore in the world tour yeah you mentioned before that the same wearing the same colored polo mm -hmm. does that make your job do you think you're doing your job better now that you don't have that ntt polo on say you're serving the same athlete um no because i'm uh, that that was a a source of quite some discussion within some of the management um, was the fact that regardless I was there for the athlete. Um, I, the T-shirt the was 
was was something that you know they I do the best for the for the team as well. Like that, don't get me wrong. But um, within performance management meetings, I was always one hundred percent for the athlete, um, and that's kind of something that I pride myself on. Mm. Yeah, maybe one of the reasons why I'm no longer there. Yeah. <laughs> um, in in all honesty, um, I'd probably go back there. I, I would go back there given um, some some different uh, some different scenarios but um from from my side I'm I'm quite glad of where I am my contracts that I've got right now are, are solid and and um I work with the athletes that uh, want to work with me and vice versa I'm ve- I'm very lucky when it comes to that but I'm uh, uh the situation that I'm in now means that I can service athletes um a little bit better because I have more capacity mm. as well so I don't have to I don't have 27 athletes in the same T-shirt. I can actually service the athletes that I've got much more substantially now, which I'm happy about. Hmm. And what what kind of demands, well, what kind of things are you working with them on? What is there common trends? Is everyone unique? Is it? So, uh, I'd say everyone's unique just because everyone's sort of grown up differently as well. When it comes to professional cycling, the, the most... The biggest issue that, uh, that that I see is that is that instability of everything, pretty much. So, um, as athletes become parents themselves and fathers, they they don't want to go away from home, even though that's their job to do that. They don't want to leave their children. They want they see their wife struggling when it comes to being a new parent. So there's demands that external, so the allostatic load, the the external pressures to performance become become larger as the family structure becomes larger within an within that athlete Mm. um but also there's a different set of demands from that from someone let's uh, put a put a name out there that that you've had on the podcast before caleb yon is a new father um i don't work with caleb but um he's a new father he'll have a, a very different specific set of demands that he feels that are putting pressure on his performance than someone the likes of uh, Dylan Sunderland, who's a neo pro at, um, at NTT at the moment. He, his pressure to perform is totally different, even because they're on different ends of the spectrum, I suppose, when it comes to their... Um, where paycheck. they are. Yeah, paycheck is one, yeah, but um, lots of other things too. Mm. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, Dylan's has a, par- has a partner and, um, you know, he's... Th- literally moving to Europe for the first time and different different set of demands. Yeah. Let's touch on your study, your PhD. You've done <laughs> okay. lots of studies. Yeah. Um, the PhD, the, re- the really interesting one that you've conducted recently, which you mentioned at the start. I'm not going to try and repeat what it was. Talk to us about that. Where'd that come from? Um, so I kind of do work on um, how athletes make decisions um, above threshold so um for want of a better word and and i really don't like this the functional threshold power around that lactate threshold um type of um so how how and why that why people make decisions the way that they do um and how you can improve those decisions by looking at the executive functions so what and why the brain 
how the, how the brain functions to, to make those decisions happen in the first place. So the decisions can have um, a myriad of different things that make that decision happen. So working memory is one where the amount of memory that you can store uh, for, a, for a small period of time. Automaticity is another one where you don't actually think, it just sort of happens. Yeah, it's an automatic response. Response inhibition is another executive function where given a set of criteria, you stop making a decision on, on one area of that, of, uh, that decision and then make sure that you choose the correct one. That's another executive function. So there's you know, a myriad of different executive functions and what I have what my, my research is is how the neurotransmitters work above uh, above the threshold so why why um people make decisions the way they do is when they're suffering when they're suffering yeah yeah so you you can you can use uh so you would have heard of someone in the past saying happiness watts mm. so um, people produce they reckon they can produce more power when they're happy you know, or go harder for longer. That's actually a thing. So um, the role of dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, which are the three neurotransmitters that really make you happy and with some other hormones, but um, and how cortisol, so the stress response, um, is mediate, mediates all of those chemicals. So the higher stress you have, the lower time to exhaustion that you have. So you can't go as hard for long as when you're stressed, your brain doesn't let you do that. So it tells you to stop faster mm. than if you actually have all the happy chemicals in your brain in the right spot. So where did, th- where did this idea come from? <laughs> um, so there's a few athletes that we worked with um, when I was at the New South Wales Institute of Sport that would constantly make, I'm not going to name names here for a very specific reason, um, that would constantly make bad decisions over time when they're above that threshold. And there was others that were maybe not as talented would make better decisions. And We're talking race... Yeah, race strategy, race strategy stuff. Yeah. yeah, so when they're above that, you know, when they're on the limit or on the rivet or whatever you want to call it, um, they'd make constantly better decisions than the person next to them, regardless of whether they were physiologically better than that person and they would beat them every single time from that then it came to me sort of looking at some military studies looking at how combat people worked under under stress in combat which is where that cortisol level component came into the the uh the research and then from that i'd you know we're talking to athletes at one at some stage and they'd say happiness what's and i'm like oh, okay well what actually constitutes happiness so what parts of the brain constitute happiness what areas of the brain what neural networks um, constitute happiness and what makes happiness happen in the brain and what lights up what areas light up in an fMRI Um, read a lot about that and then put it all together and went okay so maybe dopamine serotonin and norepinephrine which is a precursor to adrenaline can they can they be um, controlled pretty much or can you manipulate those chemicals and then can we minimize that cortisol level as much as possible to then increase your time to exhaustion across power curves so turns out you can how did you start where do you start with this you've got this idea what do you do read so get onto scientific websites and and read what 
starts out to be quite boring um, scientific journals and then make notes on that and then go back to your uh, PhD supervisors and go, oh, I think I've got this little thing, can we link this with this and am, am I talking out? Am I talking something that I'm, am I so far away from where we started that it's, it doesn't need to be done? Um, and then you start with experimentation to, to see whether it's feasible or not. How did and the experimental part, mm -hmm. how did that run? Uh, so we used endurance athletes, so elite endurance athletes. So we defined what elite was, which had to be, uh, there was a set of criteria that's um, uh, Journal of Sports Science as an as a article um, by a guy named Christian Swan that uh, defines elite athletes and what that, what that means. So we had a, an athlete had to be defined as elite to be a part of the study. And then from that, we looked at which executive functions we could, we could manipulate Oh, uh, were needed within endurance cycling, not manipulated, that were needed. Then once we did that, we, we manipulated the emotion, so which is the um, stress, dopamine, serotonin, and see, see which ones did better or not to start how, with. How'd you do that part? Um, so the executive functions that we used at the time were response inhibition, which is the, the one that I was telling you about that's where you have to inhibit the response where you think it's the right answer to start with, but it actually isn't if you just look at the... There's a, a specific task that you can do that really nails down this one executive function called the Stroop task. So we used that task and then manipulated emotion when it came to that, made them either angry or sad or... and looked at the role of, of whether happiness or sad emotion changed the way that they used that decision whether they could decide better, faster, so the response was quicker, how many wrong answers happened in regards to that. So that's where that started. And then we looked, uh, post-PhD is, is um, how much of each uh, neurotransmitter is in the postsynaptic cleft, which is the part of the neuron in the brain that, um, that uh, makes you happy or not. What were your main takeouts from this? Were you surprised? Were you... Was this what you were expecting? Um, surprised. Within, within science, you should, you should be surprised anyway. So you should kind of know what you're doing. But what you try and do is break the experiment, pretty much. What you try and do is make sure, make, that, make the experiment so it can be falsified, pretty much. So what, do everything that you possibly can to make it wrong. Like make, make what you think is what you think is going to happen, not happen. And then if it still comes out, the results, what you think is going to be the case. And every study has limitations of what you, know, what you can and can't do within a, within a study. But um, what you try and do is minimise the variables enough to, to go, what we think out of this entire study um, equates to this. But, yeah, there was a lot of things that I... That I you look at the the data and go, that doesn't make any sense, but it's, you know, you do it a couple of times and it's right. What is the data? What are, so what have we got now? Or what have you got in your mind? Um, so at the moment it's, um, it's under, my PhD is under embargo, but um, after Tokyo it'll, it'll come out. So the happiness watts is a thing. And it's a thing. Yeah, it's real. It's real. And, um, and, it's mediated by cortisol, so the amount of stress you have in 
your life pretty much and um, everything that you can do to, to minimise that stress. You need to have – so what we're talking about here is we're not talking about pre-performance anxiety or we're not talking about – like we're actually talking about pure stress. Like, so that's sleep quality, that's um, whether your next contract's going to be – 50,000 euros or 1.5 million euros, you know, like that stress, Yeah, that's, you know, whether whether your child is in hospital, you know, whatever it is. Um, so if we can minimise that and, and you can uh, you can do that by lots of different ways. Um, one of them is talk to a sports yeah. psychologist or, or um, not, not necessarily me, but um, in, within the athlete welfare space. Anybody, really. So just minimise that so you can talk to your wife. The athlete can talk to their wife. Just literally get it out and try and minimise that stress and then create happiness somewhere. And that, that results in free watts? Not free watts. You have to be able to have – you have to have that physiology to start with. So, but you can sustain it yes, longer. Yes, you can. Yeah. So under no circumstances are they free, but you can sustain the watts that you've already got for longer. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So you can't just pull physiology out of thin air and go go harder. You have to be able to have that in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. But your your psychology can improve that time to exhaustion if you use emotion and um, happiness and all, you know, affect in the right way. Can you explain in a explain in English mm-hmm. the science behind it? The the Happiness increases time yeah. exhaustion. What? What? But why? Um, that part, not overly sure yet. There's a few more studies that need to to be put in uh, to be correlated to to really figure that out. There's there's a, a there's a couple of hormones and neurotransmitters that may be involved as well that we haven't researched yet. So andenosine's one, and how that how that affects the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala to, to actually give you the decision to stop. So stop any activity or endurance activity because it's very rare that you crack because of anything but your psychology. Yeah. Can you name when you were racing a time where you were going what you thought was as hard as possible? And it wasn't your brain that said stop? No. Exactly. No. So if you can increase that over yeah. time, then we're good to go. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> so that ability, that, that, that urge for the, cest- the cessation, so the stopping of endurance activity, is, is, a, is a brain function. So what other researchers have done in the past is look at that specific what causes them to stop. And there's a whole research laboratory in several places in the world that is literally looking at that. So Samuel Makora is one person that's looking at that. There's, uh, there's a few others. But, um, but yeah, that, that, that resisting the urge to stop, if you can increase that by you know, at any, even one pedal stroke, it could be the, the difference between getting over um, Chalambra here. Yeah. One pedal stroke. You have a look at some of the guys. World Championships last year for the for the women. The person who dropped the wheels, Kashi Niwadama, probably 
it, not just her, but there was the, she was the last person to not get across that, that uh, the gap, pretty much. And if we can increase her time to exhaustion for, you know, four or five more pedal strokes, she would have made that gap. Mm. I'm not really singling her out here because it, that's just one that I can think of right now. Every um, climb to ever happen. Exactly. Yeah. But um, but yeah. So that's what we're trying to do: is use your psychological capacity or increase your psychological capacity to resist the urge to stop so that cognitive load also so like we were talking about so what how how psychologically fatigued you are also has a has an has an ability to reduce that time to exhaustion as well so sleep quality is a really big thing when it comes to that how how close you are to psychological capacity of your brain function Mm. so if you're if you think that you're at capacity you're not gonna you're not gonna work as hard you you know that within you have a look at a you're up all night playing Fortnite. Mm. your your brain's going to be fried for the next day at work yeah so that also has a has a role so there's a lab that's looking at cognitive fatigue um, and whether if you give a uh, endurance athlete um, a task to do for 35 to 40 minutes that's that is draining on that on the your psychological capacity that reduces their time to exhaustion yeah so you can train you can what they've been trying to do lately is giving the person that 35 to 40 minute cognitively draining task and then going and doing their efforts on a bike and then obviously that the rates of perceived effort are quite high there because they think that they're already tired Mm. and so they want to stop quicker and then if you give that same session to an athlete when they're not as cognitive fatigued their rates of perceived effort go down even though it's exactly the same session so it's not a physical capability that is changing that session and whether they can get through that session or not it's it's a psychological capacity mm. and they just feel as though that the session's easier because of they're not as cognitive fatigue so what you try and do it's what you um within the space that i work in is to reduce that cognitive fatigue in in an athlete prior to a, a competition so yeah get sleep get off your phone don't look at social media the it's interesting because we did a podcast with um, myself, Campbell and Tom Hamilton last year after we kind of, we'd all got jobs. So it was kind of a, uh, we've transitioned or something, looking back on the sport and reflecting on how we went about it. And it was one thing that we talked about that as an under 23 going to Europe, you don't know what you're doing. You think you're shit hot and yada 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 but the one thing that did that we did note change was how everything else was going if you were happy if you were getting along with your mates if you were getting along with your coaches if you were racing well if things were going all fine how much better you were going how much better you performed even if maybe everything wasn't dialed from a pure technical performance thing if you're happy and enjoying what you're doing, yep. it was it was so, almost easy. So, given what I've said earlier, why do you think that is? 
Lack of stress. Yeah. Yeah, the removal of stress. Yeah. Yeah. Or perceived stress is probably more to the point. So Had what you think... Yes, yeah, so not, not only that, but your ability to find happiness in the things around you, pretty mm. much. So that can be... You can get that in lots of different things in life. But yeah. Yeah. It does. There's one example that I always come back to. Yeah. Me and Rob, me and Rob Power weren't allowed to go to altitude because we're too fat. Um, Are you serious? So can you go? Yeah. So you need to unpack that because that just blows my mind that you weren't allowed to go to altitude because who said that you were too fat? Our coach said we weren't in good enough condition. What to go to altitude? Yeah. Because something around you're not meant to lose weight there or. What study is that? I don't know. Okay. Good, but anyway, yeah, we're anyway. just young boys. Yeah, okay, whatever. Yep. We'll say we'll hang around here. Um, and me and Rob had a blast. Like, yep. We had the best month because we were just hanging out, going training. Doing did that have anything to do with not being around the negative space that was your performance it coach at the time? All around that. Yeah, okay. And this is not a study, obviously, but yep. we went to the race afterwards and we were hooking. Yep. Like, Rob won by minutes. Yep. And, but we spent the last month and we we're loving it. Like it was, it was still one of the best months I've ever had. Yeah. So to give you a, a, an example, um, uh, with Dimension Data last year, Mark Cavendish had a really had struggled with at Paris. He pulled out after the second stage. I went across to Isle of Man to see him, um, just to have a, a, a sort of a debrief of that. And he wasn't having fun on the bike at all. Like just was hating, not hating life is the, absolutely the wrong word, but wasn't having as much fun as we. And I spent 10 days on the Isle of Man. Mm. Literally, I was on a scooter beside him because there's no way in the world I can have any. I don't have the capacity to ride beside <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> like, you know, um, so I, I spent some, some time beside him on the scooter and he was literally telling me all about how he... At the B, he stopped me at a BMX track. I started my cycling here. And then we talk about him as a young kid loving life, riding his bike. And then after that, we'd stop at the cafe and say, okay, so that's the reason why you started. So what's so? why does it need to be so different to why he's still doing it now? Yeah? Mm. So that's what happens a lot external, like in longer careers. You kind of you kind of forget the reason why you start, yeah? Mm. So that's what we did. We tried to really sort of break down all of the, you know, Mark Cavendish stuff, like in and around, you know, like multiple stage wins in just about every bike race he's ever been in, mm. to, okay, let's break it down. Let's just ride your bike and have some fun, mate. And he loved it. Yeah. Loved it. And now he's sort of, I think he'll do really well, like I've, He'll do well this year because of um, the environment that he's been put into. Um, so I think um, Rod Ellingworth, who's now at Bahrain McLaren, will do a really good job with him. I think he's, yeah, I think that that environment will change. Yeah, definitely. So look out for Mark Cavendish to win again. It'll yeah. Make me very, very happy. Yeah. Especially when it's such as, I guess, there's a, I look at it a couple of ways. There's, bringing you in the big the heavy hitter the real deal if you want the full package but really just not managing but understanding the person more yep. seems to be 
such an easy way to increase performance versus you have all the bells and whistles and the fastest wheels in the world, but if you can manage yeah, everything but else but around it. But um, I, I, did a, I did a podcast a few, uh, a few months back with Pete Kenyuk and it was a Swift podcast around, around the World Championships. Pete was saying who's – one of the questions was asked was whose responsibility is mental health and whose responsibility is getting the optimal performance out of an athlete. But ultimately, like, yeah, there is some responsibility for the team but also the athlete and it's, and it, it's rare that's, that an athlete will seek help unless they've hit rock bottom. They're not going to – like if, even if they're just going mediocre, mm. they're not going to ring a clinical psychologist. They're not going to ring a psychiatrist and go, yeah, I'm not really doing that well at the moment, you know. They usually wait until three months before a contract is finished and go, oh, yeah, it's hit the fan or whatever, and they go and they need to seek help or, or, or whatever it is, you know. Mm. So um, I don't know where it's going, that. So the, the answer to that question, though – it's really the it's the athlete's responsibility. Ultimately, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also I think it's in the best interests of of any high performance team to have someone on hand to be able to help an athlete with whatever problem that they have. Not necessarily to do what's right for the team as such, but to do what's right for the athlete, and then. If they're not the person that works, to, they are, I think there is a responsibility to then f- for that person to then say, okay, you need a psychiatrist, you need a clinical psychologist, you need a sports psychologist, you need an organisational psychologist, and that's kind of my area, what kind of what I do, like push, that push some athletes towards areas that I have. I actually don't have any professional expertise in, you know. So just go and see this psychiatrist here. Mm. This is the person you need. If you don't do that, then we need to actually – I'll need to do it for you and there'll be, there'll be no discussion. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, I think there's a responsibility of the teams for that. But ultimately, it's definitely a, uh, an athlete that needs to be the person because they need to engage in you as well as you need to engage in them. What about – so the other part of that podcast that we are talking about before was uh, preparing for the, the what if this doesn't work out. Sport, you mean? Or? Sport, yeah. So we are talking about being 17 and thinking, I'm just going to turn pro. It's just going to be, yep, too easy. Yep. And then things not going quite as expected from um, Campbell's scenario where he just didn't want to do it anymore. Yep. From my scenario where I just wasn't good enough, had enough. From Tom's, Tom was talking about how he just wanted to be an engineer. <laughs> just got to a point where it's like, get me back to Australia. What do so, you think? So, so from, I'm just going to backtrack here. Yeah. So you said that you definitely, you weren't good, you weren't good enough. You, yeah. you thought you weren't good enough. Do you think that had anything to do with a member of the performance staff saying that you're fat? And, and giving you a hard time in regards to that stuff because it, that didn't work for Rob. Like yeah. Rob can still turn. Oh, just it's just a, a a question. Did that? How did that affect you as a person at that stage? I think it did that change life a little bit. 
maybe it was a little bit more limiting. Okay. When, when I say I wasn't good enough, because I, I, I'll put my reference point to Rob and Jack and Caleb yep. and um, Damien Howes and like, they were just a rung above. Okay. But I think, t- to your point, I think it was probably more limiting now when I look back on it, more from a fact that, yeah, finding that scenario where this, that you were happy, you were really enjoying it all the time, you... Because that, pro- that was probably the demise of it was the you enjoyment factor yeah. came out of it. Yep. Um, which so was, which was why that month that we talked about before was so good because yeah, yeah. I loved it. Yep. And then um, it went back to normal. But in saying how... I guarantee you, you weren't six kilos over. Oh, no, I wasn't that overweight, no. You know? Yeah. So surely... like. It's, just it's kind of incredulous, really. It's just it? one of the many things that you, you're working out as a 22-year-old yep. when all of a sudden you're not living at home, you're trying to work out this new country and racing in these new places. And yeah, yeah. And um, there's gelato literally underneath yeah, your... Yeah, yep. the two euro. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... It's, uh, uh, yeah. So I think... Yeah... It's not ideal because everything else was... So could that have been framed in a different way, do you think? So do you think that the, that performance... So this is... We're not saying names here for a very specific reason, but do you think that the way that that was put to you could have been done in a different way to... Like, the language behind that could have been reframed to then get you... To get the same result, but less... Um, psychologically damaging Yeah I think Well, I prob- Looking back on it I probably wasn't mature enough at the time To go alright that's a problem Let's work out how to fix it work, yeah. Let's approach someone It was kind of just okay That was it Okay I'll just keep training Just keep doing as normal yeah, like, right. like you were talking about before With the um, athletes not doing anything Until they hit rock bottom Yeah, That was probably it It was just going at mediocre Yeah right And then So do you think that thought process actually so that person saying that to you did that spark a um a a crap response i now have to train really hard or is it a i'm doing this in spite of that person so therefore we're gonna have some fun and just ride our bikes probably the latter yeah 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 and he would or he or she would not have so there's a that that person would have thought well I th- I've told those people that they're overweight, so therefore, yeah, they've gone and did their thing, and look at them—they're bombing now. So I'm going to do that again next time. The the other part of it too was um, we we're talking about this before. My cycling career was it was pretty easy. Like <laughs> <laughs> like it went from NTID to TIS to AIS to that was the end. Yeah. But like from my first coach in Mac Gilmore. Mm-hmm. To Gene Bates, I like worked with those people and Bloody loved good. it. Like Bloody it was good so good because yep. well, um, Matt to start off with, like everything was it was perfect to start off with, and then uh, he went to the AS and Gino came in, and then he was unreal as well. Brilliant. And so I think the other challenge was it was the first time that I didn't have someone there really guiding you, really making sure everything was intact. Yep. And it was up to me. And that wasn't ready. 
You weren't, I, you weren't I, I ready wasn't for that. ready. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, that's, have you ever thought about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, after, after. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I look back at it now and, because there would have been some things that I could have done to engage, I would have engaged those people really. Yep. Um, but so yeah. Do, do you, th- uh, I am interviewing you now, yeah. I probably should, yes. sorry mate. Turn around. Turn, turn um, so, if you were given the same scenario again, mm. would you have spoken to Matt or Jean and say, this happened, how do I get better? Yeah, what, what would you have done? Yeah, 100%. okay. Yeah, right. Well, not even that, not even using that scenario, just the fact that it wasn't, that I wasn't performing at a super high level. Yeah. I was performing at an okay level. It was, I was passing. But I wasn't excelling to the, to the rate that you needed to be to go professional. Yeah, okay. Um, and as soon as the other part of it too was in the last year, that got lost, that aspiration to be a pro. And as soon as that, as soon as that went, then it really went. Well, it's game over then, isn't yeah, it, really? As yeah. soon as you go, oh, well, I'm just doing this. You, you, see, you see that quite often in all aspects of sport, no matter what level that you're at, that yeah. last year, the majority of the time, is just like, yeah, well, mm. you know, I'm, I'm done here. And it's a very, very specific athlete that can just go, I'm nailing this last year. This is my last year. Um, I think Mark Renshaw did that quite well, regardless of whether his injuries let him do that or not. He's really super keen on on that. Um, I think Enrico Gasparotto will do a good job of that. I think um, um, he's he's come out to say this is kind of his last year. I think um, there'll be there'll be athletes that are that nail it, and others that just you can just see phone it in. Hey, mm. so um, yeah, you're not the only one there. The Compared to, in contrast, Caleb, who was on our last podcast, he was 21, he'd sorted out his own house, he um, was always talking to teams, he had his own coach, he yep. had everything dialed. And that, and, but also, the difference being that he didn't just, didn't just sit there and take it. He, opened, he took it. He went and sourced that yep. himself. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that maturity part... So was that, was that Paolo at that stage, yeah, his Paolo. coach? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then he went to Kev, didn't he? Yeah. Mm, yeah, he's a he's a go getter. Yeah, like which I, like is why he's so good. So I remember Caleb as a probably twelve or thirteen year old. He worked in Brad McGee's bike shop, mm. um, and um, yeah, so I remember him sweeping the floors of Brad's bike shop as a as a really like probably the same height as what he is now. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, so I love that progression. Seeing his progression and and. Um, we, like I said, we don't work together, but I've got a, there's a, there's a, I've got a little soft spot there just because of he's from home. Yeah. Yeah. Back to where we started. Yep. The whole athlete, like it's, it's a bigger thing too, because you see it a lot in the news now of athletes falling over after their sport, super successful people too. Transition wise, you mean? Transition wise. Yeah. Well, first of all, can you tell me from a scientific perspective what it is what what, what, is, what, what, makes, what makes someone what makes it so hard to transition what makes it so so risky is it risk, risky um uh, athletes in general are more risk takers there's lots of science behind the behind the fact that they they athletes in general take more risks they kind of have to to become successful in their sport but also, they do 
quite a large um, portion of exercise throughout their entire career. And then a lot of the times they say, I'm quitting, and they don't do any exercise whatsoever. Mm. <laughs> you know, like sit on the couch for six months and realise, and then think to themselves, geez, I feel crap. I feel terrible. A lot of it's because they've been sitting on the couch and doing off-season stuff that's only was usually three weeks for six months, yeah. you know. Of course you're going to feel like crap. So um, that's the, uh, you know, in a, in a very layman's terms, um, why the body feels terrible, really, and it's detraining itself. But also there's, you, you, you've got, all the endorphins that you're not used that you're not used to having, your brain's used to having those endorphins that you get when you do any exercise. All of a sudden, it doesn't have exercise anymore, so the brain is thinking to itself, "Well, hang on a minute, I must be depressed because I'm not getting these this these hits of happiness, all the mm. uh, all the endorphins coming through, and all all the good stuff that happens with exercise." And your body's sort of going through a process of of detraining pretty much so it's going to feel terrible and then you get the added bonus for want yeah a negative connotation of bonus of what the bloody hell am i going to do for the next 35 years of my professional career Mm. like there's very very few athletes that have enough money to just go i'm done here i'm going to go and sit in majorca and and even sometimes that isn't enough that's not enough but you have to do something they can't just you can't watch Netflix for thirty five years. You can't be on holiday for no, thirty five. You can't. Years. It just can't be done. Or it it can be done. <laughs> 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 yeah, it, yeah. So it's it's like even even you know like you need something to 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 sink your teeth into post career, and some athletes take longer than others to find what that purpose is and whatever and what they want to do post-career. I mean, uh, the, the podcast you're talking about, you were saying that you, you took, what, two years maybe to find some purpose? Really? Yeah, I took nine months to work out that I needed to do something. Yeah, well, there you go. There's the first part. Yeah, and then, and then did, another year at yep, least. Yep. And then actually we hadn't seen each other for maybe a year mm. up until a couple uh, last last week some stage and you can see that you've changed in yourself like you're more you're more content you can see you're content in yourself mm. and i i was really happy and i actually said exactly the same thing to campbell when i saw campbell at nationals you can see he's more content because he's he's i don't think you guys have figured out exactly what you want to do with life yeah, but you're on no the path idea. yeah but you're on the <laughs> but path yeah but yeah but you've, you've at least both started mm. yeah yeah so I'm, I'm really that's cool from from where i'm where i sit i really like seeing that in in people the progression positive progression of people um just in general makes me happy so it makes me think too sometimes that you almost although those first like kind of post cycling all kind of you don't do any exercise you party a lot you yeah, but it's enjoy fun. doing nothing. Yeah, for all the, even though a lot of people think as an athlete you don't really do that much anyway, you do from a 
the sense that you've always got some kind of responsibility on your shoulders. You never finish work as such. No. So there's and no there's no nine to five. There's no nine to five. five. No. no. But then also seeing how that made you feel, like that you felt shit. It was like this is boring. Got nothing to do. But also that compounds itself too, yeah, because yeah. the fact that you're so used to being. 65 kilos and x percent body fat to then getting up in the morning and having to buy new clothes because the button doesn't do up mm. because you're actually becoming at no stage you're overweight but maybe you're just finding your own weight like your natural like non-athletic weight yeah so like that's there's a whole getting to know you as the non-athlete you mm. at the same time as all of the extra things going on and you not really being in control of who you are, what your purpose is and, you know, what are you going to do for the... When did you retire? When did I retire? Yeah, 22. I say I quit in... um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 22, yeah, under 23. Yep. Yeah. So when, when do you plan on being done and going buying a caravan and going living in wherever 65 it's, it's getting an older, older and older to you that's a long time eh? super, that's 50 so. years though yeah so yeah I'm so getting old though it's not far away <laughs> come on so do you think there's obviously not one solution no. to this because everyone's different everyone is like, there's you can't write a book on this stuff because it's like you have to be anecdotal at best. So you have to be, you have to have, have a scattergun approach, and and someone picks a small portion of that. And they go, oh yeah, that relates to me. So therefore, this book's right. Mm. You know, so that's you know a lot of self help books are really good like that. They 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 take that scattergun approach, and in the first two chapters, someone can go, oh yeah, that's that little part's me so I'm now going to read the rest of it and it relates to me because that first part does mm. but um, it, in reality it's a very individual thing because you're the only one who's grown up with your body you're the only one who's um, who's experienced every single thing that you have so even even your mum, dad, sister hasn't brother, sister, whatever haven't experienced exactly the same thing as what you have so therefore your path is the way that you deal with it is the way that you deal with it and you can't you you can take portions of what others do but you still have to work it out yourself Mm. yeah yeah and it's harder to work it out outside the cycling bubble oh totally totally like but a lot of the people that you that you place worth in within that cycling bubble are only your friends because of the cycling bubble. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's kind of well, the you kind of lose track of a lot of your identity with when when you decide to quit. Yeah. I think anyway. Yeah. Like uh, golf was uh, golf caddying's one thing for me. You know, um, when I when I chose to stop well, mental health reasons is the reason After being a pro for 10 years yeah c- caddy wise yeah um and my identity was revolving around that world well people still call you caddy yeah they do yeah um well, uh, matt keenan didn't know my name for 
two years. Mm. You know, always they didn't, and then felt really bad about asking me my name because we'd known each other for so, yeah. <laughs> for so long. But um, but yeah, like my 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 sense of identity was within that world. Then moving to sort of um, postgraduate studies from there, it's it's an entirely different chapter of my life. I don't. I honestly don't know who the person was who used to do that now because I'm so far down a different path to what I was before, you know, and you know, I don't drink anymore and don't have that much fun anymore um, apart from, you know, the kids stuff. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have any uh, extra stuff that makes me have fun, that's for sure. The identity thing, I think, is... Yeah, it's huge, eh? Huge. Again, there's no one one model for this. Yeah. No one way fits for everyone. But yeah. is there things that you see help that, or especially because it's a bit different for some people? But when you're quitting from, say, Caleb's level or a, a top top athlete, yeah. it's a, it's a world tour rider, yeah. for example. So it's so hard to get back to that level of something else. Of something else, yeah. It's almost, um, I think, uh, f- I don't know how to say, say his last name, Phil Gaiman, Gaiman, whatever. Yeah. He does that. Yeah, so he was saying exactly the same thing. He's never going to be as good at something as he was at riding, up a, riding a bike up a hill, you know. Um, so that just trying to find something that you're as good as is going to be extremely difficult. That might be that might be what you're the best at. It doesn't necessarily what def- it's not what defines you though. What defines mm-hmm. you is the people around you and how they interact with you. Is li- it, that's how I think that you're defined. As people are defined. Do what do the people within your bubble think of you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't don't ask a person uh from from my perspective if i want to know what type of person you are i'm not going to ask you i'll ask rob power or i'll ask flaky mm. you know but so what do you what do you think what what does how does this person tick that'll that'll give me more of a of a uh, idea of what who that person who fundamentally you are mm. than you you're going to tell me because you're going to tell me what do you think I want to know? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah. And is that, does that make up a lot of your work with athletes? Like they have them, they're, they're, the, they're the product. Yep. And then they have this team around them. Performance bubble is everything, everything. So um, when you work with an athlete, um, I'll... Who, who's in their bubble? So who, oh, yes, a manager. So... Uh, Agent. Yeah, agent. Yeah, so so we, we Caleb again. Yeah. Um, I think Jason Backer. Jason Backer from is, Sport. Yeah, um, good plug there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be in his bubble. Um, his uh, coach, so trainer, um, wife, um, child, mum, dad, wife's mum and dad, maybe yeah. potentially. Um, yeah, so maybe ten people total. And they have to interact to make that athlete become opt- uh, well enough for that optimal performance to happen. Yeah. Everyone's super important. And as you said before, to get those happy was, they need to be moving yeah, yeah. well. Yeah. But also it's not just about that athlete either. Hmm. Because that 
athletes already selfish. Yeah. <laughs> so to, yeah. to get where they are, they're super selfish anyway. So um, a lot of the work that you kind of do is just to go, well, hang on a minute. You got a wife over there, dude. Or, or um, you know, when was the last time you saw your son? Or when was the last time that you actually place worth into what your father-in-law has to say? You know, because you get into like you literally get so sucked into an optimal performance. What does this make? I need to train. I need to do this, and you forget about life. Mm. It's a, like life's far more important. That's going to make optimal performance. You get your life sorted. That's optimal performance. Just literally is a byproduct. Mm. So get that right, then you're you're good to go. The ultimate performer. Overall, have you got one? Someone that's just like, wow, this guy's got it sorted. I'm yet to find one. Yeah, someone's got, everyone's got something going on. Yeah. Yeah, they just, some people choose not to tell you. Which is something that I think goes un, sometimes the general public can forget about. Oh, yeah, like they'll see athletes, uh, they think their life is perfect. I guarantee you. There's be something that they, that's either pissed them off today, or that's stressed in their life. You know, there's some someone is causing an issue with that athlete. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. Mm. No one's, no one gets an easy ride through this. The other part of it too is now, everyone has access to everyone pretty much due to social media. Yes. How do you see that affecting athletes? Um, I think there's a generational type of thing there too. Um, so there's a, a younger generation in in and around the 20s, I think, that grew up with that will grow up with social media, like from the from the time they're nine, ten years old, and they'll be able to deal with that social media. I think better as a result, where the ones that are that I think like I'm probably way off, I might be way off the mark here, but the ones that I see that struggle with social media now, the ones that didn't have it for a small period of time, have it, places a lot of worth in that social media, and then they've done they've done something that the general public doesn't think that they should have. So therefore they get lots of um, lots of heat, whatever you want to call it, mm. on that social media. And you know, why you place worth on those words is beyond me. So um yeah, social media is not my thing. I is you not a fan of it? Oh, yeah. Uh, why would why would anyone place worth on the words of someone with an egg as an avatar and yeah. his name's <laughs> Peter three six five or whatever? Yeah. Or even if they have their name with a tick or whatever that you've never met before. So why are you worried about that person? Yeah. They can say whatever they like. Like twenty five years ago, that person lived in a different city. And you would never hear what they thought. Mm. So why are you worried about it now? Just because you read it. Yeah, like I think it's it's needed for profile and for sponsors and, and it has its place in sport. But turn notifications off, one. And if, you, and if you're struggling with how you're interacting with that platform, it's very easy to press the screen until there's a little cross that comes up next to that um, icon and just turn and literally take it off your phone for a bit or take it off whatever and just take take a break 
or don't even use it anymore. It's not that big of a deal. It's literally nothing. It's zeros and ones that come up on the screen. The, did that play a big role with Rowan? Obviously, he had it. Issue. Exit to the tour issue. issue. <laughs> um, yeah, so we and he had he had a big whack of time and he had to. <sighs> yeah, so cop a um, lot of criticism and yeah, yep. Somehow perform to be the fastest man against the clock in the world. Six months odd later, in spite of I will say, um, so um, turned off his social media because uh, Twitter. Someone, someone's opinion. It was a. It was and still is a dispute between an employer and an employee. Mm. Um, what fans think of that ultimately is not really that relevant. Like, arguably, I'll say. Um, I think there'll be people that don't see it in the same way that I do and that's okay. Um, but ultimately, the dispute that happened there specifically is a contractual one between a, like, I, I don't want anyone to know which people and employees yep. and employers yep. have so, every day yeah so i do not want somebody like airing my contractual disputes on any platform i just want it to be between those two people so yeah but that's we've kind of gone off on a tangent there but it just turned social media I, we literally just turned it off mm. and he struggled with that for a bit, and rightly so. But there was um, when he turned it off that that got turned the the, the vitriol um, of people not knowing exactly what happened, but had an opinion what they thought that happened um, got turned to his wife. Um, so, well, they were tagging her and things. Oh, yep. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like amazing, amazing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, which. We then had to then is go. Is that even worse? Yeah, absolutely. For, for Rowan, like going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, it is. And then, and then, um, you know, like having having to justify yourself when there's four people in the world that knew what's going, know what's actually going on. Mm. Yeah. And he can't speak about it. No, no, be- like be- because why would you? Yeah. For a start, because. It's not like speaking about it's not one, it's not gonna make it go away. Two is what you need what he needed was to talk to uh, and 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 for the 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 entire conversation to be between the employer and the employee. Mm. No one else really. I I'm yet to see a decent um um, explanation of why anyone else has to know. Mm. But again, I can be, you know, that's my opinion. That, you know, other people might have divergent opinions on that. And from my, from the way I look at it, they'd be wrong. <laughs> Was that, so back to what we were talking about before, for Rowan, yep. obviously he went from not in a great spot to p- putting a minute 30 into the rest of the world against the clock. Mm-hmm. Um, was your main focus with him getting that his little circle intact? Is that is that what made the difference? Uh, yes. Getting so rid of those stresses. Yeah, yeah. So from from what I had to do, 
Um, so my my role in in everything was sort of to coordinate a a strategy that promoted optimal performance. Um, Good job. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Uh, um, uh, that and some other, like this, but to involve everyone. So communication is key at in all levels of life. So what I had to do was facilitate that communication between myself, Rowan, Mel, who's Rowan's wife, um, Andrew McQuaid, who's his manager, uh, Neil Henderson, the coach. The team. But yeah, so we had to coordinate a a very nuanced strategy on how we then get him to a stage where he can compete at on the world stage. We knew he already had the physiology. So Neil, yeah, everyone did. Yeah, yeah. So, but Neil had told us that as well. So in in the in our perform like internal performance calls that we have when it went after that happened, um, Neil said he was he was better um, physically than at any stage at, in any of the previous years. So in January of 2019, he was better than January 2018. In February, he was better than February 2000. He was better across all the board. So at no stage was he was his performance decrements rowan mm. um so we knew we had the physiology so it was up to the entire bubble and that's not me at all really it's everybody here it's not just you know to get him to a point where he believed in himself enough that the physiology that he had was capable of doing what he did yeah which is a crazy thought yep. to think that you'd have to convince Rowan that he's good enough. Yeah, yeah, but we had to. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was, there, there was one, one session that about a week after I got to his place, so the, the Australian, uh, Brad McGee brought me over and we did a, uh, a training camp for the Australian cycling in, originally it was going to be in Andorra, but it ended up being in Girona. A week into that, he did a session that was he knew was better than his world championship one the year before, was better across all performance parameters. Mm. And he looked at me and he's he's got this grin that only Rowan's got and, it, and it's this sly little – he just – yeah, it is, it, his son's got it now too. He looked at me and I – because I have the on my Wahoo on the – on the scooter beside him, I knew what he was doing and I knew it was just phenomenal. And he sort of smiled. I said, oh, we're going to win the world championships here, aren't we? And that's 10 days out. And he goes, yeah, now I believe. Mm. I've got it. I've got it. And I said, mate, you've always had it. Now it's about now it's about producing that performance on the day. And, we, and he did. Oh, boy, he did. Yeah. Oh, boy, he did. Yeah, yeah. So he came past me. I was at 5K to go. He come past me and he was hurting so bad. Like you can kind of tell, Rowan's phys- I can uh, knowing knowing the physiology as 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 much as like, you kind of see that sort of stuff and and see him under load so much. You can tell he was under some severe amounts of stress or pressure. Um, with five k to go, as a little lump coming out of a like a a little town near Harrogate, and he was like a minute something up and. Roglic was um, just behind him, trying to beat him and the, the throw at the line, um, and uh, and I knew 
then and and I yelled some things that a grandma beside me probably wouldn't have liked, but I was that proud of him mm. um, and the and what he put together as a performance team and the performance itself that yeah like it gives me a lock I've got goosebumps now just thinking about it because yeah that was a, that's a special one that one yeah I'm, I'm I'm lucky to be a part of it last question yep what makes an athlete succeed so you can put down a one thing what self-regulation is? yeah so you an athlete's ability to regulate their own emotion, their their mood, their affect, their um, which then gives them drive as well. So they, uh, I hate, absolutely despise the word motivation because motivation's fleeting. Yeah, you can be motivated to eat a Mars bar. Mm. Yeah, motivation like, can change in an instant. What drives you? That's self-regulation. Yeah, so. Um, what gets you up in the morning? What gets Mark Cavendish to ride his bike on the Isle of Man in the middle of winter when it's driving rain sideways? What um, what makes Rowan Dennis win a world championship against the majority of odds? You know, like there's very few people going into that world championships that actually believed in Rowan. Mm. A lot of them believed after. That's um, yeah, but um, what makes uh, Jack Haig not come back to Australia because his life is now in Europe? You know, what's the drive? What's the end game? Um, but yeah, so the, to answer your question, what makes uh, an athlete succeed is that self-regulation, your your ability to control your own self mm. um to to then hit all of the targets that you choose yeah it's a good answer thanks dave you're welcome thanks mate thanks for your time you're welcome